When's the last time you've actually done science at church? Never? Okay. I heard a never. Cool. Well, my name's Jason Dunn. I'm the executive pastor here at K2. And uh, this morning we're going to be finishing this series on Head to the Heart and actually talking about science. Now, I suppose Dave probably asked me to speak this morning because literally before coming to K2, I had spent basically my entire life in science. Uh, and it's no exaggeration to say my love affair with science started fairly early on, okay? Um, the first book I truly remember loving was a book my grandmother gave me when I was about four years old. It was a little golden book called The Sky, and it had all the planets in it. And boy, once I got this thing, I just read the covers off it, and all other competitors were in the dustbin of history. Good night, gorilla, forget it. Dr. Seuss, no way. Uh, I memorized all the names of the planets. I memorized their order. In the, in the solar system. I could sort them by size. I asked for another book where I could memorize the moons of those planets. And around this time, all the adults in my life said, okay, what's wrong with this kid? <laughs> Something's a little different here. And uh, their fears, I think, did not abate when they caught me running home to watch Star Trek reruns after school, okay? I mean, we're talking original. Star Trek, William Shatner is Captain Kirk, fighting killer Gorn lizards in a plastic suit. I mean, this stuff was totally awesome. Am I wrong? Okay, we can't be friends if you don't like Star Trek. Okay, let's just go there, start. But uh, yeah, and by the way, as a practicing physicist, which I was, I wanna let you know that we all must love both Star Trek and Star Wars. I mean, right? I mean, but you must love Star Trek more. I mean, Star Trek has wormholes, photon torpedoes, teleportation. I mean, it's got it all. And it has, you know, Star Trek never kind of made a Jar Jar Binks level mistake like Star Wars, so. They're both awesome, they're both awesome. But yeah, the love of science started early. I found myself taking every class I could about science. I love science so much I went on and got uh, a PhD in nuclear physics of all things and studied uh, overseas at the CERN Laboratory in, in Geneva, Switzerland for a couple of years. My first career was in academia, where I was a professor, and uh, I went on into a second career in the high-tech industry, semiconductor industry, where I was actually working down at a little joint down in Lehigh called I Am Flash, a joint venture between Micron and Intel. I worked there for about 10 years and was the CEO for the last three or four years. So all that to say, from like the ages of four to about 44, I went all in on science. As all, as all in as I knew how. Now, I have no idea how that prepared me to be a pastor, but <laughs> I hope it gives me some deep perspective on just this whole subject. I mean, I literally have spent my life in science and talking to scientists. And as you can imagine, as that started occurring and I got on kind of my spiritual journey, it was pretty natural to ask myself the following question. Like, how does my faith that I was exploring relate to science? Are these two things somehow in conflict? Are they naturally reinforcing, nothing to do with each other? I mean, that was the question that started to become on my mind. And that question got fairly intense, actually, when I was a junior in college and became a source of real tension, actually. Um, right around that time, I was, I would say, checking out deeply the faith claims of Christianity and saying, hey, is this something worth basing your life on? Um, I joined a small group for the first time, met some guys that were helping me along my journey. 
and go into church. And uh, naturally, I came back into my kind of physics community. I mean, I was studying with these guys, you know, 14 hours a day and telling them what was going on. And I started to get some interesting reactions from the folks I was studying with. The first reaction was kind of this vibe that, hey, you know, science and Christianity aren't that compatible, right? And at the time, honestly, I didn't, I hadn't been exposed to that. I didn't, I didn't see it that way, you know, as a, I guess I was a, a naive college person, uh, but I didn't really didn't know what, what conflicts they were talking about. In fact, one of my be- better friends said, hey, dude, you cannot be both a physicist and a Christian, which, and to which I was thinking, wow, I really wish I would have got that information before I took a whole year of differential equations and vector calculus. But um, no, seriously, I started asking around, hey, what, what are we talking about here in terms of these conflicts? And inevitably, one of two things would come up. Either it was something around uh, arguments about age, um, that uh, somehow the scientific claim was that the universe and the earth were old, ancient, billions of years old, and that some Christians see an interpretation of Genesis that where it doesn't allow for that, and, and we have a younger, younger periods. So that was one type of conflict that always came up. And the second one would be kind of what's the extent to which biological things can vary, uh, the whole evolution question around, uh, you know, pretty much everyone agreed that biological things can vary to some degree, maybe within their species lines, but could they cross those lines and, and grow something more, more complex? Um, so those were the two things that came up. You know, and as I started looking in on those, those are certainly interesting questions. Uh, I don't disparage anybody who's checking out the answers to those questions. I mean, certainly gallons of ink and many trees have been felled on those two subjects, most of which I ended up reading. But at the time, I really was trying to back up the bus and say, hey, what are the most fundamental ultimate questions that exist around science? Okay, what are the ultimate questions? Uh, given that um, to talk about age kind of pre- uh, uh, suggests that the universe had a beginning and what's going on there? How did the universe begin and what does that look like? Um, two, I was very interested as a physicist in the whole physics of the thing and the physical constants that looked very fine-tuned for life to exist and how does that work? And third, um, how much life can vary is interesting, but I was interested in the ultimate question, which is how do you get first life? You can't have anything varying until you get first life. And how does that work? And where did first life come from? And what does that take? So I actually set out to try to answer these ultimate uh, questions, those three, uh, using kind of the, the mainstream science of the time. And I'll share that with you this morning. But then I'm going to step back and say, okay, given the answers to those questions, what kind of paradigm do these answers best fit? Is it, a, is it a universe where there is no God, the atheistic hypothesis that says uh, there is no designer and no one who sparked up or, or, or put the information into this system? Or does it best fit kind of the God hypothesis that there was a, a starter and a designer of this whole thing? So that's my task this morning. Uh, so let's jump into it. Um, I'll start with question one here, which is, uh, did the universe have a beginning? And what does that look like scientifically? On this one, it's truly a slam dunk. Um, the universe had a start scientifically. In fact, I don't know of any physicist, either atheist, theistic, or anywhere in between, who doesn't believe the universe had a start and that the science suggests that. Um, if you look at different fields of physics, from thermodynamics to cosmology to general relativity, they all point in that direction towards the universe having a start. Um, on the thermodynamics front, um, 
If you've read a book like um, Hawking's uh, Brief History of Time, a guy who's agnostic, um, we know the universe is moving towards a heat death, okay? A state of higher entropy, lower usable energy. And if the universe was dead and we had a heat death, it looked very different than what it looks like today. We're not there yet, ergo, the universe had a start, had a beginning. Now, if you look at cosmology and study what's going on kind of out in the heavens with the, the space-time fabric of the universe that general rel relativity speaks to, we see that um, in the universe, the space-time fabric of the universe is expanding in every direction, okay? Every star appears to be moving away from every other star. And if you wind back that movie with general relativity, it points back to a singularity, a start, okay, that's also confirmed by cosmic background radiation. And so each of these fields looked at separately points to a start together, they strongly point to a start. And really not any type of start, a very interesting and unique start scientifically in that the universe looks like the space-time fabric that all the matter and energy in the universe uh, reside in had a beginning that space and time had a beginning. Time had a start, scientifically. I mean, if you look at this movie scientifically, it literally looks like what the theologians reference as a ex nihilo event, okay, which is Latin for out of nothing, true nothing, something came. Um, if we look at the second question around the physics and the physical constants of the universe, do they look fine-tuned for life? Uh, here there's a whole field, actually, of science around this question called the uh, anthropic principle. And again, the answer here of, of do the physics look fine-tuned for life is a definitive yes, okay? Think about it this way. You've probably heard of some of the fundamental forces in nature, gravity, electricity, nuclear force. All of these forces in nature are described by a constant, like a gravitational constant for gravity that has some strength which means how hard gravity pulls uh, on, uh, on objects with mass. But if you look at this through uh, an atheistic lens, those gravitational constants and all the other constants could be set anywhere. In fact, if, they were, if there was no God, those would be set at random to random points. But as you study what's going on with where they're actually set, if you don't have them set to narrow, constrained regions, like on a dial dialing in the constant, then large-scale structures like galaxies, small things like atoms, aren't possible unless they're finely tuned into a narrow regime. And I want to illustrate that kind of with the atom today. We'll show you a picture of an atom. Now, I'm a nuclear physicist, so don't think you weren't getting away with seeing a picture of a nucleus this morning, okay? That wasn't going to happen. Uh, and there'll be a quiz later, so pay attention, right? I was an ex-professor. But if you look at what's going on just within the atom here, all those forces of nature are at work, okay? All of them. And You've got kind of the nucleus in the center with those neutrons and protons and a cloud of electrons that are classically orbiting around that nucleus. And if we look at these forces one at a time, take gravity. With gravity, that says that all things with matter and the universe attract every other thing with matter. So all those particles in the atom are attracting each other. If that attractional force was too strong, everything in the nucleus would be clumped together along with the other stuff in the atom. In fact, you could have everything in the universe clumped together in one mass because that force was so strong. If it was too weak, then something like our own star, the sun, our sun is a very, very delicate balance, one of the, one of the best examples of, of, of balance where 
Uh, the gravity is pulling in on everything in the sun, and its nuclear fusion and reactor at the center is pushing out, so that um, where gravity is set there is really on a fine line. In fact, several physicists have estimated how fine-tuned is that gravitational constant just to allow for a star like our sun. And if it varied by more than one part in 10 to the 38, who likes exponents here? Okay. No math lovers? Come on. No, I'm kidding. That exponent, 10 to the 38, that's the one with 38 zeros behind it, okay? So if gravity varied by more than one part in 10 to the 38, something like our star wouldn't hold together, okay? But that's just one, one constant, one, one physical force, gravity. Within the same nucleus here, you've got uh, electricity going on. So those positively charged protons are attracted to those electrons to bind the atom. If you had electricity there that was too weak, this atom would be unbound. You'd have ionizing radiation running around the universe. You've also got the nuclear force in there. That's what holds the neutrons and protons together in the nucleus. Okay, so there, um, the protons are trying to push away. They're positively charged. The nuclear force binds them together. So you actually even have all these forces in competition with each other, whereby you've got to get them all set to the simultaneously to the right point to get this right. Okay? So that's just the whole fundamental force deal. Folks who study in this field of the anthropic principle have gone out and cataloged about 100 either physical constants or initial conditions in the universe that all have to simultaneously be set right to have the life thing be possible. Some of those are fairly esoteric, things like uh, speed of light and other constants. Some of them are very straightforward, like the oxygen level that's on Earth, okay? The oxygen in our Earth is about 21% of, of, our, of our atmosphere. If that varies by a little bit, percent and a half or so, we're fine, we keep breathing, right? But uh, you get down to 15%, work becomes hard, you get fatigued. 10%, your lips turn blue pretty quick. 6%, you're basically in a coma in 40 seconds, okay? So many, many constants, many physical conditions have to be sim simultaneously optimized here to make something like life possible. Um, so astronomer Hugh Ross, uh, kind of a prolific author who, who writes in the area of the anthropic principle, has cataloged these constants and asked the following question, kind of, if you... How many universes out there would you need if all these constants were set at random? How many universes would you need so that you get one that would be capable of supporting life? Okay, just one. Uh, given, you know, all these different constants could be set randomly to different locations. And he estimated that the number of universes you would need would be 10 to the 138th. That's a one with 138 zeros behind it now. A number that's so large we can't even fathom it. I mean, the biggest number that we could, I guess, potentially fathom would be something like uh, how many atoms are there in the known universe, which is only about 10 to the 70. I mean, this is just a fantastically huge number. And so the challenge around having uh, randomly setting these constants to the right point is truly a daunting one. And if you look in on just these first two questions and say, okay, um, and by the way, I think an atheist would agree with all the science I've presented so far, and they're wrestling with this question as well, and what does it imply, okay? And for an atheist, the leading interpretation of those two ideas um, is actually a theory called multiverse, or many worlds theory, okay? If you've gotten the literature, you'll find that right away, okay? It's the leading interpretation of those facts. 
In multiverse, you kind of need the following, okay? Um, first of all, you need at least one universe that sort of created itself, okay? Um, why create itself? Well, for an atheist, there's no other game in town, okay? The universe needs to make itself. There's no outside agent or intelligence that could be involved. Um, that's a pretty big problem philosophically in that uh, when we see events normally in the universe, those have causes. Those causes are outside themselves. And for a universe that we already know scientifically, space-time came into being, we'd need a cause outside space-time. The universe is not. By definition, it's inside space-time. So we got a, a, cosmology, uh, sorry, a, a causality challenge there. But also, why would you need an infinite number of universes? Well, you'd need to create an infinite number of universes so that in one of them, you'd get the constants right so that life would be possible. So that's the multiverse theory. We need really an infinite number of universes out there, you know, none of which are actually observable, by the way. I mean, we don't have insight into other universes, or I don't, yeah, so. Um, so as I was looking in on just these first two questions and saying, how does this all fit together? Um, here's my two options. Either, you know, an infinite number of universes created themselves, or, you know, in the God hypothesis, one God who's outside of space-time you know, created the universe and stepped into that equation this way. Which one requires more faith? Okay. I think they both require faith. But for me at the time, looking in on it, um, this, you know, the second option, the theistic option, really made the most sense. And uh, that was before we started talking about um, the challenge around, around first life. So let me switch over for, for a few minutes and talk about uh, biology here. So um, the challenge around first life and how to think about all the issues around first life really got cooking in the 1950s. And it got cooking with the discovery of DNA in actually 1953 by Watson and Crick. You may have seen these folks. That's their, them with their original model of uh, the DNA molecule. They got the Nobel Prize for this. The great murder mystery story, by the way, they were in competition with a couple other groups and looking at each other's information. And these guys using kind of that ball and stick figure like Tinker Toys put this together and actually were the winners that came up with uh, that structure of DNA uh, around 1953. But the real interesting part, that was a great discovery. I mean, that double helix of, of DNA. But the real fun started when you look inside DNA and say, what's going on? DNA from uh, information content, and what is the, the purpose of DNA, the things got really exciting. So let's look at the second model. Actually within DNA, you see these pairs of nucleotides called nucleotide bases, those A's, C's, G's, and T's within the DNA, okay? And those bases are in a highly specified, very important order, okay? They can't be any other, they give the instructions about how you make a protein in, in a cell. Okay, and when Crick and, and company first started discovering these realities, they compared that information content most specifically to a computer program, because that's really what it looks like, a specified code to build something, okay? And quickly it became clear that, you know, if you're gonna understand and solve the uh, origin of life problem, you're gonna have to understand and explain this origin of information problem, the information in that very, very code, which is how we build proteins. Within the simplest thing like a, an amoeba, that information content uh, within the DNA is equivalent to thousands of copies of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So this is kind of hard to, uh, 
visualize all this, I wanted to show a couple animations this morning that help shed some light. So this first one is a, is a minute or so from a, a video called Information Enigma, and it kind of talks to this whole information challenge. So let's, let's pause and take a minute and look at... Uh... Scientists' understanding of biological information advanced dramatically when Cambridge University researchers James Watson and Francis Crick made a startling discovery. They found that the structure of the DNA molecule stores information in the form of a four-character digital code. Strings of precisely sequenced chemicals called nucleotide bases supply the assembly instructions, the information for building the crucial protein molecules that living cells need to survive. Crick later came to realize that the chemical constituents in DNA function like letters in a written language or digital symbols in a section of computer code. Just as English letters convey a particular message depending on their arrangement, the sequences of chemical bases along the spine of the DNA molecule convey precise instructions for building proteins. The arrangement of these bases directs the arrangement of the 20 different kinds of amino acids that make up protein molecules. All right, so when you look in on that information content, a um, couple of questions. Uh, the first one is, normally, when we see computer code and information like that, like it's needed to, to construct a protein, we ask ourselves the question, hey, where's the programmer, okay? Where's the information coming from, the code coming from behind that? And, uh, and, and, and what's the origin of that? But two, as you were looking at that kind of construction process uh, that we're gonna hone in on here in a second, that whole construction process is a complex engineering system. For somebody that's spent 15 years of their life kind of in a nanofabrication facility down in, down in Lehigh, uh, the process involved in actually creating any one protein is very much like a process like that. It has multiple machines involved, multiple steps involved, a highly specified sequence, uh, and, a, and, a, and a structure to it that is a that is a complex engineering machine. If you've never seen that, I want to show one more animation this morning where it kind of gives you a bird's eye view into how that, that uh, engineering process works within a cell. So let's take a look. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus.
The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. It's amazing to think before the advent of molecular biology, where you start to study the very small, the cell was actually thought of as a potentially a fairly simple place. Uh, in fact, when you look at the information density that's involved in that DNA computer code and the manufacturing system that exists there, amongst that process you just saw. It's probably the best example of a highly specified engineering system in, in, in all of nature. So absolutely very cool. Um, you know, and, and as, as I take a step back from, from these three questions, I mean, for anybody who attempts to study and understand mysteries like this, the origin of the universe, the origin of the physics, the origin of first life, these are pretty complex questions. And uh, I certainly don't, intend this morning to say that those answers are simple. I think for anybody who, who jumps into this area, either looking at it scientifically, philosophically, or any other way, you know, a certain dose of humility is involved and, and should be involved. I mean, they're very, very complex things. But, you know, as I go back to that discussion I had with the, with the friend as a junior and who, uh, who said, hey, you know, uh, being a physicist and a Christian are fundamentally incompatible. As I've looked in on these three questions and others, Instead of them pointing me away from the God hypothesis, they've really pointed me towards the God hypothesis. And beyond that, I mean, once I, the door was open for me to, to consider the God hypothesis, then to look in on the actual person of Jesus, right? The person who came to earth and, uh, and, and did live that perfect sinless life and died for us, uh, and that we can know him, that really sealed the deal for me. And... You know, for those of you who are on the other side of faith in the room, I know most of you are in that camp. Um, I hope you see the wonder and awe in the physical world as a point of deep inspiration, a real sense of awe. That's certainly how it exists for me, and as I already confessed, that sense of awe really started in the sky for me. Um, you know, looking in on Psalm 19, one of, my, one of my favorite verses, Psalm 19, 1 and 2, really kind of sums this up well for me. Um, the heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. That's how it really feels 
um, you know, for me being on the other side of faith. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to give you a few examples of how, how that feels and looks for me. I wonder what it looks and feels like for you. But when I uh, first had a chance to go out into, um, into the boonies, away from the city, I know we're city dwellers, so we're not used to this. When I had a chance to go out into the boonies and look up into the night sky, and I first wondered, what is that milky-looking thing, that hue in the background? Something like that glow that you see only in the night sky in, in, the, in, the, in the mountains. You don't see it around here. That's kind of the background view of the overlapping 200 billion or so stars that are in our Milky Way galaxy. And when you look right into the disk that's our Milky Way, that's what you see. All their points, you're looking kind of out of our disk. But you can see the Milky Way clearly up in the, up in the night sky when you go far away. And then when I first looked through a telescope, it was even more amazing. You could get a close-up look on something. And uh, one of the first things I ever saw through a telescope was this type of object. It's called a globular cluster. It's a tight, densely bound unit of about a million stars. And we've got about 100 or so of these that kind of just gracefully orbit in a halo around our Milky Way galaxy central core. And easy to see in an amateur telescope even. But where it really gets fun is if you look through the biggest and best telescopes we have, something like the Hubble telescope. Uh, why is Hubble so cool? Well, it actually orbits above our distorting atmosphere. So it takes pictures from, from out in space. And this is one of Hubble's best pictures. It's got many, but I like it because this one's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Okay? And how you take this is you actually point Hubble to a small part of the sky for about three or four months. It's like taking a really long exposure with a camera and just sucking in that light so you can see things that are further and further away. Now this little bit of sky is about 1 13 millionth of the sky. Okay, so it's like looking at something in the sky that's the size of a grain of sand kind of held out at arm's distance, okay? Now, there's 13 million more of these all the way around the rest of the sky. This is just one. But in that one little grain of sand, here you can see about 10,000 different galaxies, different shapes, sizes, colors. There's 13 million more of these, like I mentioned, and in each one of those galaxies, if it's like our Milky Way galaxy, we're talking about hundreds of billions of stars. So put it all together and look throughout the whole universe. Uh, we're really talking about hundreds of quintillions of stars in the entire known universe. Okay, a big, beautiful, and amazing place. It's amazing to step back and think about that and say that the God who created all of that cares about every single person in this room this morning, knows your heart, knows where you're coming from, and is looking to speak to you and know you in a way that's personal, okay? For me, that's also a point of deep worship, deep appreciation uh, as, as, as I walk this journey, and I hope it is for you too. Let's talk and take a moment and pray here as we wrap up. Lord, as we prepare to worship this morning, I just thank you for who you are and for your goodness, your greatness, demonstrated in everything you've made, all the awe and wonder in the universe, I pray for each person here this morning that uh, we will be thinking in our hearts about what inspires us that you've created, Lord, and be dwelling on that this morning. It's truly a magnificent, magnificent place. And Lord, we also thank you that within all of that, you love us so dearly and uh, love each one. And Lord, uh, 
as we also prepare to take the offering, we thank you that you provide for us, that uh, you've given us an opportunity here to be a stewards over part of your creation, and that uh, you ask us to give back to you both out of obedience and to know that that's your path to, to be reaching the world. Lord, we pray that we'd have glad hearts to be willing to partake, partake in that and give back to you, Lord. We just thank you for who you are this morning. And uh, yeah, we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.